everybody. If we haven't met, my name is David. Uh, in a moment, we're going to have our reading from Habakkuk chapter 3. Um, but what you're about to hear is a poem, the sort of thing you might find in the book of Psalms, written by Habakkuk in 612 BC. He's awaiting the invasion of the Babylonian army into Jerusalem. He's a man familiar with the environment of suffering and deportation and torture and death and he is anticipating more to come. And in this poem, in his distress, Habakkuk gains a fresh glimpse of the glory and majesty of God, expressed in rich, overlapping poetic metaphor. As we read, look out for Habakkuk's reaction in verse 2 and verse 16, as he fears and he trembles at this vision of God. And yet this great vision of God is what enables Habakkuk to ultimately resolve to wait quietly for the Lord to act and he rejoices in the Lord because of this even as everything is taken away from him this is Habakkuk's personal emotional journey of wrestling with God in a time of distress written down and transformed into a corporate psalm for our benefit and I pray this emotional journey will be both relatable and instructive for us. So let's open our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Thank you. Thanks, Abigail. The reading is taken from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 19a. You can follow this on page 786 in the Church Bibles. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, crawling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. 
You trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Here ends the Bible reading. Thank you so much for reading so well. Um, keep your Bibles open in Habakkuk chapter 3. That's going to be really helpful as we go through because we're going to deal with the poetry line by line. So do um, keep your Bibles open at uh, page uh, 786 if you can. Now, Paul tells the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord always, and the encounter group has kindly chosen this impossible command as the topic for tonight's sermon. Rejoice in the Lord always. Sounds completely unrealistic, doesn't it? Always. In September 2020, I received a message uh, to tell me that my friend Sam had suddenly died. Um, this was totally unexpected. He was about the same age as me. He was married with a young daughter. Uh, we used to read the Bible together before church. We were in the same home group. And the idea of rejoicing in the Lord when you experience a loss like that, that is something really difficult for us to get our heads around it forces us to ask whether it is possible to rejoice in the Lord whilst feeling and expressing grief and pain and suffering. And I think it's fair to say that is when we find it hard to rejoice, when we are physically and emotionally suffering in some way. In preparation for the sermon, I asked a number of people when they find it hard to rejoice always in the Lord. Here's a sample of what they said. Um, I find it hard to rejoice when I've been hurt by others, particularly Christians. I find it hard to rejoice when I'm stretched thin and when I'm stressed. When life feels hard and unfair, it's hard to rejoice when it's just one loss after another or one illness after another or one difficulty after another, seemingly endless. I find it hard to rejoice when a close family member or a friend dies. When my children or my close relatives, when they won't accept Jesus, I find it hard to rejoice when I experience illness. And another adds, I remember two months when I could barely get out of bed and I still had two young children to look after and I felt abandoned by God. And yet we're told to rejoice always. Even in those situations. How does that work? To help us, we're going to consider Habakkuk, and we're going to consider his situation and his response to it. The year is 612 BC, there or thereabouts. The Babylonian army of Nebuchadnezzar is on the move. The, uh, the nation of Assyria has spent the last 120 years or so battering the northern tribes of Israel and much of the surrounding Judean area to the south of Jerusalem. And now the Babylonians have taken the Assyrians out. They're about to take on the Egyptian superpowers. 
and then they're coming for helpless Jerusalem. And they are brutal. To give you some down-to-earth context for the brutality um, Habakkuk faces, uh, expects, expects to face Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, let's consider what Habakkuk would have known the Assyrians had already done to a place called Lyshish, about 25 miles uh, from Jerusalem. Um, hopefully, up on the screen, we can see a, a relief from the, the British Museum. Um, this is a carving um, by, commissioned by the Assyrian king Sennacherib after the successful conquering of Lyshish. Um, these war mounts uh, that he picked among other horrors, three Judean leaders of Lyshish being impaled on spikes and two other leaders being flayed alive. They are disgustingly brutal in their detail, particularly when you see them in person. And King Sennacherib celebrated his brutality by commissioning these war carvings to be put on the, central, the walls of the central room of his palace in Nineveh. That's the kind of people we're dealing with. That's the kind of brutality Habakkuk is expecting from the Babylonians if Jerusalem falls to them, which it did. About 20 years after Habakkuk wrote this poem to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar II. How does Habakkuk manage to rejoice in this context? The key to Habakkuk's rejoicing in the Lord, despite his circumstances, was that he rejoiced in the Lord and not his circumstances. Throughout this book, Habakkuk, he's wrestling with a seeming disconnect between what he knows to be true about the character of God and what he is seeing happening in his own life. The book opens in verse 1 with these words, How long shall I cry for help and you do not answer? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? And yet, he concludes tonight's poem, as we've just had read, with these words, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, my strength. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord in this context? I don't think we're meant to be thinking sort of smiley, celebrations, super happy, we're about to follow Habakkuk on this emotional journey with the Lord that passes through something like awesome fear to quiet, patient waiting, and finally, an expression of trust. For Habakkuk, rejoicing in the Lord is keeping your eyes fixed on God, to know that he is truly good, to know that he is your strength, to know that God desires your good and to keep trusting in him and to know that he keeps his promises even when your life seems to be falling apart around you. Um, one person that I asked about their struggle with rejoicing always said this to me, the hardest time to rejoice in the Lord is when I am distant from him, when I'm not praying and I've forgotten the amazing promises I have. The joy of being close to him that is when rejoicing in the Lord seems like an impossible command because I don't know what I'm rejoicing in. And that is exactly the point. How can we rejoice in the Lord if we've forgotten who the Lord is? 
And that's what we're going to do together tonight with this poem. Um, I don't know how you are with poetry. Um, if you're a maths guy like me, um, poetry might not be the most intuitive thing for you. The creatives among us might be slightly on the front foot. Uh, but the key with this is that we've got to use our imagination. There's lots of imagery, lots of metaphor in this passage. It's meant to be pictured. What would it look like? What would it sound like? What would it feel like? Try and picture that in your mind as we see some of the language. Because this is metaphor that is meant to be felt. And that is what Habakkuk did. He felt it. You can see it moves him. Verse 2. Oh Lord, I heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. And then verse 16, in response to that vision of God, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver. Rottenness empties, enters my bones. And my legs tremble beneath me. This man is shaking. He's a wreck. What is it that Habakkuk has heard to cause this response, to cause such fear? And in verse 2, he seems to be reflecting on the reports of God's work in history, in Israel's history. Think the plagues of Egypt. Think the hail and the blood and the darkness and the death of the firstborn of Egypt. Or think maybe the Red Sea of the water rising up to the sky, parted to the left and parted to the right. Banks of water rising up to clear a highway for God's people to pass through. Or picture the fire at the top of Mount Sinai of God's presence that they don't go near and they don't touch the mountain. He contemplates what he's heard about God's might in Israel's history and he fears. And then Habakkuk considers his circumstances, and he says this in verse 2, in the midst of the years, revive those mighty works. In the midst of the years, make them known. Revive that work. Make it known again today. Show your power, Lord. Show your power today. What would that look like? Well, Habakkuk helps us with that too. Um, in verses 3 to 5, he begins to imagine in his mind's eye the Lord appearing in the sky above him. And what follows, it's a series of poetic metaphor expressing what it will be like for trouble to come upon those who attack God's children. Let's begin with verse 3. The Lord came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. The poetry, it pictures God as an overwhelming light in the sky. It fills the sky, rays of light flash from his hands, so bright that it veils his true power. It's a bit like looking at the sun on a hot day. Don't do that. It's really bad for your eyes. You can't really see the sun. You can't see the true glory of the sun. You can just see the rays of light coming from it. And in verse 5, it continues the imagery of pestilence and plague. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. And here Habakkuk, he's invoking the plagues of Egypt, the pictures of the plagues of Egypt, but personified as a marching army marching before him and marching behind him. Take a moment to picture that. The 
plagues here, they're a picture of the Lord coming in judgment. Coming in judgment on those who have sought to harm his people. And then the Lord, having advanced on the sky, he halts and he looks. Verse 6, he stood and he measured the earth. He looked and he shook the nations. And he's able to measure the earth, the whole earth, as he stands there gazing at it. That is a picture of immense power. How big must God be? He then shakes the world in judgment. I think the picture here is something a bit like a snow globe. You could hold it in your hand. You could measure it. And then you could just give it a little shake. You might try that when you get home with your snow globes. And just picture the nations shaking in his hands. That's the scale of God relative to the earth here. That's how big God is being pictured. The creation itself crumbles at this scene. Verse 6. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. It's not just creation, the nations. They tremble as they see the Lord approaching in this way. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Seems appropriate, doesn't it? Wouldn't you tremble at such a sight if you can picture what that would be like? And then in verses 8 to 15, the, the Lord is moving. He set himself, now he's moving into battle with his enemies. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheaf from your bow, calling for many arrows. The Lord's advance, the battle advance, it's pictured as a horse and chariot careering through the open ocean. If you can picture again what that would be like, the water flying from its way. And he strips his bow and he calls for his arrows and he takes aim at his enemies as he advances in this terrifying way. That watery image again, it takes us back to the Red Sea parting before the Lord at his will. And verse 10, the mountains, they saw you and they writhed. They recoiled before the Lord. The raging water swept on the deep, gave forth its voice. The mountains writhe, the waters rage, and the deep waters roar. And then paralysis grips the sun and the moon as they are taken captive by this dreadful image. Verse 11, the sun and moon, they stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spears. And then in verse 12, the metaphor slightly shifts again as the Lord now kind of makes land and starts advancing through the nations, freshing them as he goes. You marched through the earth in your fury. You freshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. If you're not familiar with freshing, hopefully we can get the picture up on the screen here. Yeah, there we go. It's, this is a, a picture of old school freshing, beating the grain from the straw 
either over your head like this or maybe with a scythe, that kind of cutting idea. It's a picture of immense, terrifying judgment as the Lord comes to separate his people from those who oppose him. He freshes the nations, the rebellious nations, in his fury so that his people might be saved. Verse 14, the battle imagery continues. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. You came like a, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. And then the sea metaphor again in verse 15. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Remember the Red Sea, the way the Lord moved through the mighty waters to bring his people through safely and to destroy the Pharaoh who pursued them. Habakkuk is pulling through that imagery afresh for us. As the Lord acted once to save his people, so he will act again. And having seen that fresh glimpse of God, we return where we started to Habakkuk's response. He's now overwhelmed with fear as he sees this image of God appearing and battling with his enemies. It is terrifying for him. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. His first emotional response is to fear. And the question is, where does he go next with that fear? What does he, what does he do with that picture of the fresh picture of the might and the glory of God? And we're going to pause there. I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. And we are going to sing, I will bless your name, O Lord. Let's bless the Lord as we have this vision of the Lord's great and mighty power in our mind. And then we'll come back and continue with Habakkuk. So we left Habakkuk in a state of fear as he responds to this fresh vision in his mind of God appearing in the sky, doing battle with his enemies with great might. What does he do with that vision of God? Halfway through verse 16, it is like Habakkuk pauses and composes himself and takes a deep breath of realization, looks up and says, okay, Lord, you have got this. You have got this. Verse 16, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And this is Habakkuk's resolve at the end of the vision. Even though his circumstances are completely unchanged by what he's seen, his perspective and his response have been profoundly impacted by this meditation on the vision of God. The Babylonian army has not gone away. There is no tangible improvement in his circumstances. His physical life is the same, but there is a fundamental change in his perspective. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the oil fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut 
from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. The picture in verse 17 is of total agricultural failure. The total effect of that piling up of losses in verse 17 is to be bereft of the basics needed for survival in that culture. It's a metaphorical picture of total loss, total destruction. In other words, if absolutely everything was taken away from me, it is a huge statement. If everything was taken away from me, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Our poet concludes that he will rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of his salvation no matter what happens in his life. If everything was taken away from you and the worst possible imaginable thing were to happen to you, could you echo Habakkuk's words? That is the key question from this passage, and it is not an easy one. Habakkuk's circumstances, they provide no joy for him to celebrate in of themselves. He's only able to say that he rejoices because he rejoices in the Lord alone and not his circumstances. And therefore, he can rejoice in the Lord despite his circumstances, in the easy and in the really, really hard. Habakkuk is a letter. It is a letter of protest. It expresses frustration at the perceived disunity between what Habakkuk knows about God and about the character of God and what he is seeing God letting happen to him and in his life and to his nation, his people, as he weeps for them. Can you relate to Habakkuk's complaint? Do you ever find yourself saying, as he does at the start of the letter, how long shall I cry for help and you will not answer? What's Habakkuk's answer to that tension? He gives himself a fresh glimpse of God in all his glory and all his might and in all his furious justice. And he concludes in verse 19, God, the Lord, my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread in high places. The Lord lifting us to high places, it's a picture of us participating in his victory. And the Lord will be victorious. Do you doubt that after what we've read this evening of his might and his glory. He will win the victory and he will make us tread on high places. That imagery of the deer, that poetic imagery is one of energy and pleasure and relishing in its freedom and in its place. 
reading fresh about God this evening, it's done nothing to change the material circumstances of your life. But my prayer is that, like Habakkuk, these words have shifted our perspective. As we remember our place in the great unfolding plan of our unchanging God. With a fresh glimpse of the unchanging might and glory and wonder of God, Habakkuk looks out into the distance and he contemplates the advancing Babylonian army. And he is able to trust in the Lord's power and the Lord's timing and the Lord's plan. And he says these words, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the oil fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, God, the Lord, my strength. When we feel let down, and when the stress comes, and the illness comes, and when death comes, when our circumstances will not stop changing, they just will not stop changing, we need to look to the one who never changes. The one who will bring about victory over his enemies. The one who will save his people, just as he promised. It's in the Lord that we need to rejoice. Because if we rejoice in him who never changes, we can truly rejoice always. Remember those words someone shared with me? It's when I've forgotten the amazing promises we have and the joy of being close to him. That is when rejoicing in the Lord seems like an impossible command because I don't know what I'm rejoicing in. And then there's Habakkuk's resolve one more time. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, God, the Lord, my strength. Let me pray for us as we close. Lord God, help us to take to heart Habakkuk's vision of your power and your might, and your victory. Help, to, help us to believe your great works in history, what you have really done. And make us fix our eyes on your unchangeable nature once again. And help us to fix our eyes on the hope that you hold out to us in your word. Lord, may our hearts rejoice in you who never changes and never fails. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.